It's tough being number three. Like we have three daughters, and they were all born in the pre-iPhone days, so it was a little harder to take pictures back then. You had to get a camera, and you had to have film in it, and that type of thing. So in spite of that, our oldest daughter, Brittany, we have a lot of pictures of her. We also have quite a few pictures of our second daughter, Shannon. But then our youngest daughter, Ainsley, there are very few pictures of her. Like I had wallet-sized photos of Brittany and Shannon, but not of Shannon. So when we would talk about this new child, I would show Brittany's picture because Shannon looked a lot like Brittany. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, Ainsley looked a lot like Brittany as a baby. And then I even forgot her name when I went to introduce her the first day she was after her birth. We were going to call her Claire all that week. And then my wife, Pat, called me on Saturday night. No, her name's Ainsley Irene, Ainsley Page Irene. So I got up here. I had a few pictures I took in the hospital. Couldn't remember her name. (laughs) Experts say when you have two children and then move to three, it increases your workload by 75%. And you would think one-third would be the norm, but I've got one child, you've got one, and who's going to look after the third one? Now, all of you that have four children, maybe that's the answer. Then you have two each, and it works out well that way. But the first child has new clothes, the second daughter has so-so hand-me-downs, the third one gets pretty rough-looking hand-me-downs. And then we just kind of let her grow on her own. She would spend a lot of time in her friends' homes. We went to parent-teacher interviews, and the teacher said, Why are you here? Your child's doing so well. Let me talk to the parents of the kids who are struggling. Okay. And then we went to her grade 9 graduation, and the first award was for phys ed. And I thought, well, uh, that's expected. She's my daughter. But then... Math, Ainsley Nicholson, Science, Ainsley Nicholson, History. Seven of the 11 possible awards that day she received. And and Pat and I just look at one another. Where did this come from? And then uh, we went to uh, go out one evening, and Ainsley was at her friend's place. And I called, and... They must have been giving her a hard time because as she was coming to the phone, she was saying, see, my parents still love me. And then she answers the phone, and I have to tell her, your mom and I are doing this, Brittany's doing this, Shanna's doing that, you're on your own for dinner again tonight. You know, we sometimes realize that it is tough being number three. And you will sometimes hear people use the word trinity in church circles. And that's actually a word that isn't even in the Bible. We hear about the Godhead being spoken of there, the concept of three distinct manifestations of God. We know God the Father quite well. The Old Testament introduces him and talks about him a lot. Then the New Testament introduces us to God the Son, Jesus Christ, who became God in the flesh, came down to earth. But in this series of messages, we're going to look at the third part of the Godhead, and that is God the Holy Spirit. And you'll learn how he has come to take up residency in the heart of every believer. Now, it's easy to picture a father. It's easy to picture a son, but not the Spirit. So sometimes the Holy Spirit gets lost in the shuffle. 
You might even have grown up in a church where the Holy Spirit was hardly even mentioned. And when it was, it was more like Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And you don't understand the Spirit's role or function. He's the third, and there aren't many pictures. Yet the early church desperately needed his power, and they called upon him because they had an awesome task, which was to share the gospel with the world. So look at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Then he told me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. You will not succeed by your own strength or by your own power, but by my spirit, says the Lord all-powerful. Now, we've just finished a series of teaching where we've looked at the foundational elements of the Christian faith. And we ended it with the disciples being instructed to go out into all the world, and they were to share this message. And now we're going to look at the book of Acts, and we're going to see how this mission continues. And we'll see how the Holy Spirit is empowering the church. Now, the book of Acts is literally a church history book. It's, we could actually call it the Acts of the Apostles because it tells us the actions of the apostles in the spreading of the New Testament church. And in chapter 1, which precedes the start of the church, we see a description of the role that prayer played in the establishment of the church and the invitation of the Holy Spirit to come and to empower the church. So here's the setting. The Holy Spirit is now personally going to come to live in every believer. His power is going to be available for those who would call upon it. And we touched on a portion of this two weeks ago when we looked at the final 40 days that Jesus lived here on this earth. And then he instructed his disciples just before he ascended. So in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 4, Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And he replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit would be coming upon them, and right after he ascended to heaven, he would come in that form. He would inhabit the church so what did the people do? In the meantime, they got together. They prayed. Like Acts 4, verse 31. After they had prayed, the meeting place shook. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and bravely spoke God's message. Then in chapter 7, verse 59, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So the early church valued prayer. They prayed individually, they prayed collectively as a church, and so must we. So we're going to look at some parallels between that first century church and what happened in the prayer lives of those believers, and we'll see how they can happen in our lives today if we will allow ourselves to be guided by prayer. 
the disciples, first of all, showed us the need for prayer. And one of the reasons they gave is because they were commanded to pray. That Jesus had told them to wait, and they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. So what did they do? Right after Jesus ascended, they went back to that upper room that they were so familiar with, and they prayed. And their prayers serve as a model for us because they prayed for the spiritual leaders of the church. Our prayer list is typically kind of full of sick people. All the sick people we know, we pray for them, and we tend to neglect the spiritual needs that people have as well. And we need to balance that praying for the sick and praying for spiritual concerns. So these early Christians realized the need for prayer and it was a priority for them. And they also prayed because Jesus was gone. Like this must have been a difficult time for them. Like they'd grown quite dependent upon Jesus during that three years that he had been with them. Like they were face to face with him. And now he can't intervene in their disagreements. They they can't just walk around and talk with him because Zoom, he's gone. It's different now. So they're virtually on their own waiting for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And they've got to be afraid. Like fear drives them to their knees and they pray, Lord, would you fulfill your promise now? Would you send us your spirit as you told us? And as soon as they get back from witnessing that ascension, their first instinct was to pray. And they also prayed because they realized that the job that God had given to them was huge. They were to be witnesses to the whole world. I felt like when I came here that this job was going to be huge for me. I was reading in, there was an article that would come out monthly because the church was sponsored by a church planning organization. And that article would say there are 50, 60 people in church. And I came here the first Sunday, and there were 39, and 10 of them were out-of-town visitors. So I thought, ooh, 50 would be nice to start with, but this number might be a bit of a struggle. The the job was huge. But Jesus had given them this responsibility to travel the world, to tell them about this Jewish carpenter who died and just at the age of 33, and then he came back to life again, and now he's in heaven where you can't see him. And they realized that they were small and that they were inadequate for this task. Like this was something that they couldn't do on their own. They were unschooled. They were just ordinary men. But we also need to note that the disciples set the example of prayer for us. So in Acts 1, verse 12, Then they went back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. This mountain is about half a mile from Jerusalem. And when they entered the city, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, known as the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, were there. They all continued praying together with some women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers. Now, I wonder if God listed all those names so that people would know that everybody was there, that they were all present, that they were all praying. 
But how did they pray? They prayed constantly. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we used this for a series of messages back in November. They always be joyful. Pray continually and give thanks whatever happens. This is what God wants for you in Christ Jesus. So as Christ followers, prayer is our lifeline. And later in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, we read about this man by the name of Saul. And we would know him better as the Apostle Paul. But he was arresting Christians. He was aggressively persecuting the church. He had many of these Christians thrown in prison and eventually killed. He was a feared man. But God intervened as he was traveling on the road to Damascus. And they had a little chat. And as a result of that discussion, Saul was directed to go to a house in Damascus. And he was there. He was fasting for three days. And then the Lord spoke to a Christian by the name of Ananias, instructing him in a dream. So it's chapter 9, verse 11. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to Straight Street. Find the house of Judas and ask for a man named Saul from the city of Tarsus. He is there now praying. Now, Ananias is understandably reluctant to do this. He's heard all the stories about this Saul from Tarsus, and he doesn't want anything to do with him. But God then goes on, and as if he needs proof, he says, he's right there now praying. He's in that room blind, and he's praying and waiting for you to come. And this prayer is different because... He has met the risen Lord, and he'll never be the same again. So Ananias went, and he taught Saul, and he healed him. Saul got up and was baptized and had some lunch. See, prayer is a distinctive mark of someone who wants to follow God and be empowered by the Spirit. Then we also note that the disciples prayed specifically. We're picking up in verse 23. Two men were suggested. One of them was Joseph Barsabbas, known as Justice, and the other was Matthias. And then they all prayed, Lord, you know what everyone is like. Show us the one you have chosen to be an apostle and to serve in the place of Judas, who got what he deserved. They drew names, and Matthias was chosen to join the group of the 11 apostles. So two men met the requirements to fill that open position they had. They needed someone to fill Judas's role. But they prayed specifically. They said, God, you lead us to the one that we should choose to take his place. Now, sometimes our staff is called upon to pray specifically for someone who is in physical distress or someone who has a special need or maybe for someone in which there is no hope. There's another avenue that the Bible makes available to Christians, and that's in James 5, verse 14, where we read about it. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, sometimes God answers those prayers with a resounding yes. And we think of 13-year-old Eric Dubé, who had such serious open-heart surgery just a couple of months ago, and everything went so well. 
And then we see other examples where doctors, they, they just can't explain why a person made a dramatic recovery. Like it goes against science is all they can say. But that's not always the case. In the summer of 2001, Jerry and Lori Patterson, who were on staff at a church plant out in Hammonds Plains, their little three-year-old boy named Silas developed brain cancer. And they didn't have elders at that time, so they called on the elders of our church to come out and anoint Silas with oil and pray for him to get well. And it was one of the most moving moments in my life when we were praying for him. But he didn't get well. Now, sometimes God chooses to heal a person. And listen to this. Other times he chooses to make a person perfect, and he takes them from this life. Like there's a lot of prayer that takes place behind the scenes that the majority of people don't even see. Like there's my prayer list. A lot of you are on that. There's a list that we have as a group of pastors. I know many of you pray with a list. Then prayers take place at our elders' meetings. We're praying for all of you. And then we have a missions prayer team that prays every day for one of our missionaries. And then at our groups, at our life groups, at youth group. I'm sitting in my office some Wednesday nights and you can hear these youth in there praying and it's powerful, the prayers that they are praying. Our music team, they pray before they go up to lead us on Sunday mornings. We pray during meetings. Our elders have a vision for more prayer and we want people to get even more passionate about prayer. Like sure, we go through some times where it's almost like we feel a bit of spiritual dryness. But make a commitment that today you're going to jumpstart your prayer life. You're going to jumpstart your time with the Lord. Maybe you'll start listing your prayers. And then later on, you'll be able to look back and say, wow, there's another one that God answered. Or maybe you'll start journaling. You'll just write your prayers out so that you have a record of those. Maybe you'll start praying with your spouse. Or maybe you'll start praying with your child before you send them off to school for the day. But do something specific that shows you're serious. The disciples, they prayed constantly. They prayed specifically. And they also prayed corporately. The King James Version of this verse says that they were all in one accord. So they were all together. They were all united on this. And Luke, when he writes the book of Acts, doesn't just picture individuals praying, but he says that there's a power when a group of Christians pray and when they're united in purpose, that God blesses those efforts. See, there's a unique opportunity here on the third Saturday night of each month at 7 p.m. We have a time of prayer here at the church, and most of you are missing out on that. And I dream of a day when there are so many people here that we can't just be in one group, that we split up into smaller groups, and then you can just hear all these voices praying at the same time. Please commit to coming and being a part of that. Because we've seen God working in our church and we know that if we pray in an even greater way that God is going to work in an even greater way. The disciples were there. They continued praying for the promised Holy Spirit. And then Romans 8 verse 26 tells us, In certain ways we are weak, 
but the Spirit is here to help us. For example, when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit prays for us in ways that cannot be put into words. All of our thoughts are known to God. He can understand what is in the mind of the Spirit and as the Spirit prays for God's people. So when we make prayer a priority, God will empower the church. There's a missionary by the name of Daniel Utiaya, and he serves in a predominantly Muslim section of West Africa. And he emailed one of his supporters and said, You should know my phone has now been tapped. Whenever I leave the house, a car is always following. But don't worry, I'm fine. Just keep me in your prayers. Like people have come to his house. They've tried to kill him but never succeeded. Uh, it's been divine guidance and also a vicious watchdog. He has been stoned for his faith, and yet he keeps on sharing the gospel. So one of his supporters was asking him about his prayer life and asked him about these hours that he spent in prayer early each morning and then said, would you begin your day without prayer? And Daniel was just kind of perplexed when he looked at that person. He said, that would be suicide. Not to pray would be suicide. Look at what Peter Kreft wrote. He's a Christian philosopher and professor. And he said, I strongly suggest that if we saw all the difference, even the tiniest of our prayers make, and all the people those little prayers were destined to affect, and all the consequences of those prayers down through the centuries, we would be so paralyzed with awe at the power of prayer that we would be unable to get off our knees for the rest of our lives. Just little prayers, little prayers are so powerful. And just imagine what big prayers and a lot of time in prayer can do. Next week, we'll be looking at Acts chapter 2, and we'll see how the Spirit came powerfully into the church. But if you don't hear anything else I've said today, please realize this. If you want to experience the growth and joy of the Acts 2 church, then you have to pray like those Acts 1 believers. Not to pray is spiritual suicide. Have you ever noticed the things that people collect? Our five-year-old grandson, Seth, he's always picking up branches as he walks home, and he was collecting them right by their front steps. But they're in a condominium setup so that there are landscapers, and the landscapers would rake up his sticks. So Seth's getting smarter. They're now up on the landing, so those men don't come and take my sticks. Now, if you were to go to our daughter Ainsley's former bedroom, uh, it's no longer filled with her junk, but it's now filled with my hockey card collection. My wife said, please take that out of the hall closet, and I did. And somehow it just seemed to grow, and it took over Ainsley's old closet, plus I'm into the room as well. Like, women who sew will have huge collections of yard goods, as they call it, for those projects that they're going to do someday. A room will be just full of material. Like, there was a woman in our church years ago who collected uh, ceramic dolls. And some of these dolls were quite big. Everywhere you went in her house, these dolls were just kind of staring at you. And our former associate pastor, he collected 
Nintendo games, and he collected, uh, what is it, Transformers and, and things like that. Now, one of my wife's co-workers recently had a brother uh, pass away, and he was uh, single, but he had this collection of thousands of angels. They were everything. There was a snowman angel. And at the funeral home, the family, his surviving brothers and sisters, started giving half a dozen angels to everybody that was there. Please take these home. And I said, I don't want them. I, I already have an issue with hoarding things. Because when my daughters are cleaning, would clean out their rooms, you'd see the garbage bag, and there'd be a note, Dad, stay out of this. Because you just look at the top of the bag, and that trophy, you don't throw out that trophy, I'll save that one. Or that award that they got. And then I guess maybe I do the same thing around the church because our associate pastor and children's ministry director came in on Saturday afternoon. And the first thing they said was, oh, you're here. And my thought was, well, oh, you guys are here because I thought I had the place to myself. But they were here with a trailer to just gather up all the junk in the basement and get rid of it. And they were afraid that I would start pulling things off that trailer. Does God collect anything? Is there anything in this universe that you would think he saves? Like if you were to go into God's house and look at the shelves, like what would be on those shelves? Or if you were to go to the trophy case, what would be in that trophy case? The book of Revelation actually gives us a hint in that area. Chapter 5, verse 8. After he had taken it, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders knelt down before him. Each of them had a harp and a gold bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of people. So your prayers are so important to God that he's keeping them in these golden bowls. And I was wondering, you know, what size bowl would it take for God to hold on to the prayers of all the people in our congregation. Like hopefully it wouldn't be a little dessert bowl or one of those little bowls that you dip your meat in at a meal. Hopefully it would be like one of the bowls that I've seen in restaurants I worked in as a teen when they're making uh, salads in them. Great big bowls. That's the type of bowl God would have with the prayers of our people up on his trophy case in heaven. If you're a Christian... God sees you as a saint, and he saves your heartfelt murmurs to him. So in those bowls are the prayers of a recovering alcoholic, the prayers of a grief-stricken person who has just lost his wife or her husband. It contains the praises of the one who acknowledges that God is God. It also contains the grateful words of a sinner who has just experienced forgiveness. None of your prayers escape his notice, and he wouldn't throw them away for anything in the world. The most recent prayers to go into those golden bowls had been offered on behalf of Debbie Cunningham's husband, Richard Woodall. Two years ago, their daughter Christina and her husband became Christians through a church in Manchester, New Hampshire, where they live. So in Christmas of 2015 they came to visit her mom and dad here in Halifax. So Richard and, and Deborah came along to our Christmas Eve service very reluctantly, but the kids said, we're going to church and you're coming with us. 
But something happened when Debbie was here at that service and Christ started to work in her, the Spirit started to work in her in a big way. And by the end of that following January, she had given her life to the Lord and was baptized. So the prayers that her daughter had offered for her had come to fruition. Then she started praying for Richard. And it was working, it seemed, then at other times it didn't. But then just a little under two months ago, he was having motor skill issues. He went to see a doctor and they very quickly diagnosed him with ALS. And you can already see how it's taking over his body. So the Spirit has started working in him again. Like Debbie has been witnessing to him. And now a relative of his paid for he and Debbie and their daughter Christina to go to the river Mayan Riviera in Mexico to have a family trip together before his motor skills get to be too bad. And just on this Thursday, I have a video to show you what happened. Hi, everybody. We're here in the Riviera Maya, and today my husband Richard and my daughter Christina were going to be baptizing Richard. Um, my daughter became a Christian two years ago. I became one a year ago. And now today, welcome to our Christian family, my husband Richard. Um, Richard, do you repent of your sins? I do. And do you, yeah. and do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes. Uh, at the first service, I said I'd watched that seven times trying to control my emotions. Now it's eight. It's still not working. But he went out of here the Sunday before, oh, two weeks ago, the Sunday before they left. And he said, I'm going to find God this week. And it's just amazing how God has worked from one person to the next to the next. And Two weeks ago, I read the Great Commission where Jesus said that we're to go into all the world and we're to teach and disciple people, baptize them, and then teach them some more. And, and that's the way in which the church has continued to this day. Christina and Gordon became Christians and they discipled Debbie and then Debbie discipled Richard and that will continue on from there. That's what it's all about. That's what church is. It's one person leading another to Christ, and then we come together to celebrate that. And part of our celebration each week is the Lord's Supper. If you have that relationship that I've just talked about, then please participate with us. Our practice here is just to hold on to the bread and the cup as the servers pass them. I'll pray and then guide us to take those together.